Um, you can open your Bibles, if you have them, to 1 Samuel chapter 16, the end of chapter 16, starting in verse 14, and we'll go through 17. 17 is going to be pretty familiar to you, um, because uh, 17 is David versus the mighty Goliath. Um, so, I, in the story this, this evening... I'm not going to spend tons of time on, um, hang on one second, I'm trying to get on something real quick and get on the right Wi-Fi so I can control this with my iPad. Um, I'm not going to spend too much time on the story of David and Goliath itself and more talking about the, the underpinnings underneath the story. Most of you are probably pretty familiar with the story of David and Goliath. We're going to go through it a little bit, but I'm going to spend a lot more time on, um, on some of the, the other things that we need to realize and pay attention to that are going on in the story of 1 Samuel itself. Remember, we've started this, this part of the series looking at how God is establishing his kingdom. Uh, we started all the way back with Adam and how he began to establish his kingdom there, and Adam fell and and then establishing a new family and uh, through Abraham and uh, with Moses and the people of Israel calling them to Sinai and sending them into the, into the promised land. And now establishing his kingdom in the promised land with his people um, and telling them uh, basically he's their God and they're to follow him and listen to his words. And so we've seen that as they've gotten into the land, well, even along the way, They've not been so great at it, uh, at, at following his words. They have a king. They wanted a king desperately. They wanted to kind of usurp the authority of God and basically just say, just establish us a king. We don't care about all this. We just want a king like everyone else. And so he gave them exactly what they asked for. He gave them Saul. Saul, as it turns out, is not great at listening to God's words. In the, in the most recent uh, lesson that we went through, Saul is tasked with going after the Amalekites. And he's supposed to go after them because the Amalekites attacked Moses and the children of Israel on their way to the promised land. And the way the Amalekites did it was particularly surreptitious. They went uh, from behind and basically stabbed them in the back, essentially. Picked off all the sickly ones that were straggling along behind behind Moses and all the people. Started attacking them from behind. And then eventually, the Amalekites and the Israelites got into a battle where, you'll remember the battle, where Moses is lifting his arms, and as long as he lifted his arms, they won the battle. The Israelites won the battle, and when he got tired, they didn't. So his relatives had to hold up his arms, and, and of course, they won the battle. Um, but what, what God had told Moses is that when you get into the land, there's going to be a day where I'm going to go back after the Amalekites and I'm going to abolish them from the face of the earth. I mean, just absolutely desecrate them. And you're going to do this. Well, it comes the day where Saul is the king, and he's charged with going after the Amalekites, and that's what he's supposed to do. This is God's vengeance. He's taking out on an entire people group, and Saul is the one that's supposed to, to do it. And Saul goes in uh, with under the threat of, you must listen to the Lord's words, and and literally get rid of all of them, burn them all to the ground, everything that the Amalekites have touched. And all of these are to the Lord, and he does not do that. In fact, he only burns the bad stuff. Uh, he takes all the good, fattened animals for himself. Uh, they keep Agag, the king, as apparently a slave of some sort. <clears throat> and Samuel finds out about this and comes to Saul and says, you're done. It's over. God has now torn the kingdom away from you, and I'm about to go anoint somebody else. And he takes a, Saul takes a, uh, Samuel takes a, a sword and just hacks Agag to bits and finishes the job that he should have done to begin with. And um, so David, I mean, uh, Samuel then goes and anoints David as king over, over Israel. And we ended the story there where, he, where David is officially anointed and the, the Spirit of the Lord has, has rushed upon David. Now, there is a transition that happens between 1 Samuel 16, uh, 13 and 1 Samuel 16, 14. And between those two verses, we see a big transition. And all of it hinges on the action of the Spirit of the Lord. Somebody read 1 Samuel 16, 13, and 14. There at the top of your verse, Pastor. Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward, 
And Samuel rose and went up to Ramah. Now the spirit of the Lord departed from Saul, and a harmful spirit from the Lord tormented him. You notice the transition here is all around the action of the spirit of the Lord. That is what is at stake here. That is what causes a king to rise and fall, is the action of the Spirit of the Lord. Uh, when the spirit, the spirit of the Lord rushing upon someone is evidence that God is doing something new. We see this with the kings. We've seen this in the book of Judges when God anoints a judge to be his uh, basically ruler over his people and save his people. The Spirit of the Lord rushes upon him. Um, this happens with the kings, uh, as especially as uh, Saul's line is established, then David's line is a change from Saul's line. And so there's a new uh, thing that the Lord is doing. We see this through the book of Acts from time to time and various other places that um, when God is establishing something new, there is a, a spiritual presence there in, in, in some ways. Well, what we also see is that this is going to uh, empower David to be a little bit of, uh, I don't know how, how else to say this, but bold for what the Lord is, is going to do for the, the people of Israel. We've seen in the past that, that this man David is going to be, the reason he's anointed is because he's going to be a man after God's own heart. And what needs to be established for a new Adam to establish God's kingdom other than to be a man after God's own heart, one who is, who, who is wanting the same things that God is wanting to establish his kingdom in the land. Well, notice that, that God, in, uh, in the beginning of verse 14, the spirit of the Lord departs from Saul, and a harmful spirit from the Lord is sent to torment him. God is the controller of all spirits, the creator of all spirits, and so he sends to him essentially a demon for the purpose of tormenting him. Now, that probably is a little bit weird to many of us, and that's okay. It should be weird to us because it's a weird thing, all right? Uh, it, just, it just is. But a, uh, an evil spirit comes to torment Saul, and it sends him into a, a basically a crazy tailspin for the rest of his life, and that spirit will be there to torment him until the day he dies. Well, this is a, a a particularly concerning thing for all of the people around Saul at the time that he's got he's the king over all of Israel he's got tons of control over lots of things and occasionally he is sent into a blind rage for no apparent reason probably an american psychologist today would diagnose him with bipolar disorder uh, which in in the old testament Days and what what is true here is that there is a demon tormenting him, leading him into these sort of blind rages and split person. What appears to be a split personality for for him, and so there's one solution that they think about uh, giving to Saul, which is listen. Have you ever listened to really good? Have you, you know you need some Kenny G. You need some Kenny G and a bubble bath. All right. Uh, and just to, just to relax, all right, a little bit. And I think that would soothe you. So they propose, I'm sorry, give me, hang on. You, you, you spoiled it. You jumped the gun here. Uh, you, need some, you need some soothing music, do I? Yeah. <laughs> I've missed something, and I don't know what it was, but probably it's for the best. Oh, yeah, yeah, okay. Uh, <laughs> you, you're trying to listen too fast. Um, so, you know, they, they, his servants propose, listen, here's what you need to do. We need to get some Kenny G in here and just, and just calm you down. And Saul thinks that this is a pretty good idea. And so he basically commissions them to do whatever it is that they, want, they need to do to be sure that, that he gets some, uh, some soothing music. Now, the, I debated whether or not to, to talk about this at all tonight, but I thought, it's Wednesday night. I wouldn't do this on a Sunday, but let's give it a shot and see if it works. Okay, um, there's a, a, a way a story is told. When we tell a story in modern uh, American writing, when we tell a story, the most important point we want to make is typically reserved for the end. That's our strongest argument that we're going to make typically is at the end. 
And when we get to our conclusion, we're driving home all the things that we said because the and, and a lot of teachers will even teach you this when you're speed reading. You know, you can read the beginning, you can read the end, and you can generally get the gist so you can kind of skim through the middle of it. Well, um, that isn't really the way uh, uh, an ancient Hebrew thinks about writing or making a strong argument. Um, there is a way that stories are composed in the Old Testament called chiastic construction. It's building a paragraph or building a story around a shape kind of like an X. But what you're focusing on is this part right here. It's the shape of the argument, okay? Again, I'm going to try this and see if it works here. Um, The idea being that you introduce one element of the story, point one, we'll call it. And you conclude that element of the story at the very end. So the one you introduce first, you conclude at the very end. This would be called one prime. So you have point one, and then you have point one prime. Then you introduce another element to the story, and you conclude it second to last in the story. So that would be point two and point two prime. The only one that stands pretty much alone in the story is the point in the middle of the story. And that is the point you're trying to drive home because it has no other parallels, or at least not really. You tracking with me? Okay. Um, the shape of this story, so, so uh, sorry, I missed a little, I should have done that. That would have been, that would have made everything make a lot more sense, you know, see. Uh, so point three is there. Okay. In this story, what you can see is that an evil spirit arrives to Saul. And at the very end of the story, the evil spirit leaves. There is a proposal by the servants for therapy, Kenny G. And in the second to the last thing that happens in the story is Saul's experience of Kenny G. Okay? Um, then there's Saul's authorization, let's do this. And when Saul, b- before Saul experiences it, he, it he's, it's favorable to him. Um, then there's David's nomination by the servants. We know this guy, David, he could do it. And David arrives on the scene. And so that leaves this middle portion right here as being the only one without a parallel where the king of Israel calls David. Now, the reason why that is important, and I decided, let's go ahead and let's try to, try to do this uh, and explain a very complicated idea, is that in the previous passage, you have Samuel, the judge over all of Israel, prophet and priest, anointing David at God's command. Well, do you know that that is the Lord's anointed one, really and truly. Do you know it? Or are you just taking Samuel's word for it? Well, we say the Spirit rushed upon him, didn't he? Okay, but how have we seen that so far? Okay, well, we haven't. So basically, we're just taking Samuel's word for it, that he called him? Well, then in the next passage, the king of Israel calls David. Wouldn't you know? The most ironic thing in all the world would happen. What are the odds that of all the people that play the harp and the lyre, the one that the king appoints to do this would be the one that God called to? So you have God calling David, you have Samuel calling David, and you have Saul calling David. So... That's important because David hasn't even spoken a word yet. We don't know what his voice sounds like, all right? He has not said one word in the story yet. And here he is called by three of the most powerful men in all of Israel and established into position. The average reader would have to conclude after this, okay, yeah, I think probably something really has happened here, okay? Uh, This seems to be evident. Does that make sense? All right. Okay, good. Hey. Where's the other part of the X? It's not there. <laughs> nope. Not there. It's just the, the left. It's just the left shape. It's just the... 
Yep. They just call it a, a chiastic construction because a, a chi is a Greek X. That's it. So, yeah, I forgot to probably say that. That would have probably made a lot more sense. Yeah, yeah. Why didn't they call it an aeroistic construction? You know, it would be a bit made more sense, I think. But, uh, yeah, Greek chi. There you go. That's the missing, that's the missing blank there. Um, so what that means is that as you look at um, 1 Samuel 16, 14 to 23, that section that closes out chapter 16, what seems to be... Now, granted, the Lord is punishing Saul. There's no question about that. The Lord is, is punishing Saul for what he's done. Because it's one thing for the Spirit of the Lord to leave him. It's another thing for him to send a, a demon to torment him, right? But what is brought to him as punishment, there is also a means of grace that is brought to him as well. The one anointed to be the next king of Israel is coming as a, as a, a means of grace to soothe Saul, even in his disobedience. Saul has... has basically told us through the story over and over again, he has no desire to listen to the word of the Lord at all. And even in spite of that, the Lord is still being gracious to him. Even in the massive amount of torment that that must be to have this demonic tormentor, God still gives to him a, a, a medicine in the king of Israel coming to his bedside to play for him. There's something uh, comforting about that, I think. Um, now, I want to be honest with you. There's some strange things that happen uh, in this. First, David is uh, providentially selected um, to, be, to play for Saul. But what happens here is that in this providential selection, David gets to see life inside the court. Remember, we talked about last time when David was anointed, and we don't know how much time has passed here, but some people estimate it's probably been a year or two. Um, time has passed since David's anointing. We're, we're, not, we're unsure. But um, one of the things, you remember David is very young. We, we think probably somewhere between 12 and 15, he's young. And as far as the years and when, there, when David actually takes the throne, how old he is, how long Saul lived, and that kind of thing, um, people estimate that like 12 would probably be a pretty good pretty good age for him to be anointed. That's incredibly young to be anointed king of Israel. And so in this, he's given a glimpse of life inside the king's court. So he gets to see what goes on. He gets sort of inside baseball as to how all these things really take place, what really goes on, what's expected of a king. And as of right now, he and Samuel are really the only, and I guess David's family, are the only ones that know what the Lord has done here. But, but David gets this sort of providential glimpse inside life, inside the court. And then uh, it even says in the text that David is uh, appointed to be the armor bearer as well as the musician. Now, th there's some strange parts of this. Because if you've ever read this, this story, the end of 16 and then all of 17... There's a portion in the David and Goliath story where it seems as though Saul has never met David, doesn't know who David is. Um, and, and it sort of, it throws people for a loop because people want to ask the question, well, it, it really feels like in the David and Goliath story, Saul's never seen this guy before and doesn't know who he is. He's asking about his dad, who his dad is. But then here in 16, 14 to 23, he seems to call upon Jesse. Uh, it says in 22, and Saul sent to Jesse saying, let David remain in my service for he has found favor in my sight. But then at the end of the David and Goliath story, he's, telling, uh, he's asking his servants, who's his dad? Because I, I want to I, I I get the phone number of this guy. I need to, I need to give him a call because I want to keep David with me. Keep this, this. And then he calls David the young boy. He doesn't call him, call him David, which you would think if he knew him, he would call him by name. And so a lot of people ask, what, what is really going on here? And there might be a couple of different things going on, at least all at once. It's possible that Saul knew at one point who his dad was and just, he's forgotten what his dad's name is and just and really just needs his dad's name, but he knows David all, all too well. Um, the other possibility here is in 16, 14 to 23, it's possible that Saul is in such a blind rage, he doesn't know who's at his bedside, really. 
Uh, he tells his, his emissaries, his servants, go handle all this for me. Get this musician, if you will, put him by my bedside. That's fine. I'm okay with that. And every time in 16, 14 to 23, again, this is possible, where it says in like 22, for instance, Saul sent to Jesse saying that it's possible that that's really Saul's emissaries going to him. And the king is saying through his emissaries, let David uh, stay here with me. And that, da- that Saul is more or less uh, ambivalent or doesn't really know who this person is really that's playing by his bedside. That's also possible. Um, I don't know that it solves all the questions in the, in the passage of, of the killing of, of Goliath, but I think it does solve a number of them. Um, so point being, um, there, there's some important things here, I think, that are parallels even for the Christian in today's, today's world, because Saul, we know, is going to absolutely despise David. And yet David is there as a means of grace to Saul, even in the midst of him totally rejecting the Lord out of hand. David is provided as a means of grace. And for the Christian, we can't help but see that, that our life as Christ's people Jesus tells us the world is going to hate us. But yet at the same time, he calls us the salt of the earth. So what does it mean to be the salt of the earth? Well, it means that Christians are here on the earth as a means of grace to the people around us. That's, the, that's our purpose in ministry even now as a church. We don't have to ask, what is Emmanuel Baptist Church put here for? Why is Emmanuel Baptist Church put here? Well, I can tell you one thing's for sure. You're put in Tuscaloosa to minister to the people of Tuscaloosa. Right? I mean, that's, that's bare bones. That is as simple as it gets. Uh, not that the people in Ohio aren't important. And as, you know... Needs, or as, as needs arise and there is provision, we should meet the needs of people in Ohio. God calls us to do that, for sure. Not that there's not people in, in China that don't need help. Of course there are. And as needs arise, we should be able to do that. But I don't know about all that, yet I do know for sure that he's called this church, Emmanuel Baptist Church, Tuscaloosa, Alabama. And so he has said to us very clearly, Tuscaloosa is the place where I want you to minister. So what is our purpose? It's clear. God's done this since the beginning of establishing his people. You are to minister to the people that are around you. And God is, has essentially provided here, I think there's a, a natural correlation in reading David's story and how he ministers to Saul and how, um, how, how God appoints him to that, that, that purpose of you bloom where you're planted, as it were. And there is David, anointed king of Israel, playing for a loon in, <laughs> who's going off into a blind rage uh, and, and soothing him. He's playing the part of Kenny G, essentially. Um, all right. Now, we get to the part of the story where we're probably the most familiar. Saul is, uh, is having a... a a Philistine problem. There's a big Philistine problem. And you remember over the course of the story, the Philistines have been uh, of late, especially uh, caused a little bit of, of, of a problem for the children of Israel. And the reason is because Israel first picked a fight with the Philistines. I want to destroy these Philistines. And so they picked a small fight. And then the Philistines got wind of it back in Gath and Ashkelon and Ashdod. And they said, well, Let's all get our armies together and let's go up there and fight them right in the cotton-picking middle of the land, right near Jerusalem. And so they mount up and they go over there and Jonathan uh, picks up his, his uh, sword and, and says, you know what, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to fight them for Israel. And so he, Jonathan goes out and fights him and, and all the Philistines scatter with the earthquake and all of this. Well, it's clear that the Philistines want to establish presence right back in the middle of the land again. And so... They've come to the valley of Elah, and they have set up uh, camp there, and they're ready to take the, the land back again. But let me ask you, if you had gotten your tail kicked in battle 
by one individual and a massive earthquake. How anxious would you be to head into battle against a whole bunch of them? You, you wouldn't. So what they decide to do is not, let's not, you know what, let's not solve this by having all of our armies meet in the middle of the valley. Let's instead, let's propose a duel, all right? So I'll bring out, we'll bring out our biggest guy, you bring out your biggest guy, and then we'll fight. Let's do it like that so that the, 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 the battle is even, all right? Stop the earthquakes, not the big armies, none of that. Let's just do a one-on-one. -on -one. And oh, by the way, we have a guy who's 9'6", <laughs> who carries a spear that's about 16 pounds, who has armor that's about 125 pounds, uh, and, and we're going we're gonna to put him up. Who you got? Now, Saul's big, uh, but he's not that big. Now, as far as the Valley of Elah, let's, uh, you got both of those. It's Philistine problem and dual are the two blanks here. Um, if we're looking at the land itself, uh, Ekron, Gath, they're all over here on this side of the, the land. Right here in the middle, this is be the Dead Sea right here. Jordan River is right over here on the wall. Jerusalem. Gibeah is Saul's capital. So Gibeah, he's coming down here to the Valley of Elah. Bethlehem is where David is. David's going to be sent to bring cheese to his brothers. Um, and it's for real, he's bringing cheese. Uh, some meat probably too. But, um, and then the Philistines are coming from Ekron and Gath and Ashkelon and Ashdod are all down here. They're coming to meet at the Valley of Elah as well. Not far from Jerusalem. You can see, oh, you probably can't see. Um, this is about, I think, 15 miles is what I've got down. Um, it's somewhere close to that. Now, Goliath is most likely a descendant of the Anakim. We saw, this, we saw them mentioned uh, all the way back in the book of Joshua. Uh, in fact, if someone wants to read Joshua there, 11, 21, and 22 out loud for us, remind us. Now, the Anakim are mentioned there uh, because they were a, an exceptionally tall people. And when you're tall in this day, in hand-to-hand -hand combat, when you've got wingspan on somebody, that's a fearful thing, all right? When you can carry heavier armor and heavier weapons, that's a, that's a big deal. And so uh, Goliath is, he comes from, from Gath. And that is where the Anakim settled in. They settled in with some of the Philistines. And so if you've got an exceptionally tall person, let's say you've got a few exceptionally tall people, um, and you're a, an, an, a, fighting, a fighting crowd, you're probably going to want to make sure that these two get married. All right? Have some tall babies, all right? <laughs> so there was everything for the Philistines to keep the, the, uh, the Anakim together and uh, and producing tall babies. So um, there's a description in the beginning there in, 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 the, in describing, uh, um, what's his name? Goliath. And it says in verse 4 of 1 Samuel 17, it says, And there came out from the camp of the Philistines a champion named Goliath of Gath, whose height was six cubits, uh, like nine, six, and, and a span. And he had a helmet of bronze on his head, and he was armed with a coat of mail, and the weight of his coat was 5,000 shekels of bronze, um, and he had bronze armor on his legs and a javelin of bronze slung between his shoulders. The shaft of his spear was like a weaver's beam, which is apparently really large, and his spear's head weighed 600 shekels of iron, and his, his shield bearer went before him. can't imagine being his shield bearer. Poor guy. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, but the estimates that, that, that I've read are, are 125 pounds of armor, roughly, and uh, a bowling ball, basically, for a spear, uh, the weight of a spear. So uh, heavy, heavy armory. 
And, um, and he's coming out. And, and, and there's a lot of time spent on this description of Goliath. And, it, and what does it leave you thinking? What have you always heard in Sunday school? You always seen the pictures of, of, of Goliath and he's just this mat. He takes up the whole felt board on the, you know, you remember the flannel gram. Takes up the whole thing. He's just, just massive. We, we're standing there looking at Goliath and you're like, oh my goodness, right? Aren't you captivated by his height and his size? Don't we tell stories about his height and his size? Shame on you, faithless sinners. You were told in the last chapter not to do that, right? In chapter 16, the readers are reminded of the story that we've just read, lest we be tempted to look at his tall stature. Look at 1 Samuel 16, 7. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I've rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. I wonder if in this very next chapter, the author of 1 Samuel, maybe it's Samuel himself, I don't know, has just sort of baited you into a little trap where you, the reader, are also tempted to look at Goliath's stature and go, man, this guy is huge! David's little bitty. In fact, we're going to see this happen over and over to David in this very story. So David runs an errand for Jesse. He's watching his sheep. He goes back. It, it's obvious that in the story, David is going back and forth between the palace. And normally just comes to the palace, it seems, when the people, it, Saul's people run the 10 miles it takes to get there and says, he's going crazy again. And David runs back and plays the heart for him and then runs back and takes care of his father's sheep because he's going back and forth between the two places. And his father's getting old, and so he's taking care of his, his dad's sheep for him. And then he's also taking care of the king on the side. So David is told by his father, go and tend to your brothers on the front line. Take them some cheese and some meat and some crackers and some good stuff and you know, feed them because I'm sure they're getting hungry. And so David is the cheese bearer at this point. He goes to his, uh, his brothers and... You know, he happens to hear the speech that Goliath gives every single day. So Goliath goes out on the battlefield every day, announces loud and proud all of the things that, um, that, that he's challenging them to. Bring out your biggest guy and we'll fight and you cowards, you lazy dogs. And he's, he's coming out there and challenging them every day. Well, it happens that as David approaches the battlefield, he overhears it. And apparently, when you put together trash talk from an opponent and the Spirit of the Lord, the two don't mix, all right? Apparently, David just cannot let it go at all, and he's just got cheese in his hand. <laughs> so it's not, like, it's not like he's a little runt with cheese in his hand. It's not like he's that fearful of a guy. But he walks up onto the battlefield and is, and is basically like, nobody's wanting to take on this uncircumcised Philistine. To him, he's just an uncircumcised Philistine. Who cares? I don't care how tall he is. And David develops essentially the gun. <laughs> right? <laughs> don't bring a, a knife to a gunfight, right? Goliath is going to learn the hard way. Um, Let's, let's just kind of read through some parts of the story. 17, 8 to 11. Somebody read that out loud for us. This is Goliath talking. He stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel, Why have you come out to draw up the battle? Am I not a Philistine? And are you not servants of Saul? Choose a man for yourselves and let him come down to me. If he is able to fight with me and kill me, then we will be your servants. But if I prevail and kill him... Then you shall be our servants and serve us. And Philistine said, I defy the ranks of Israel this day. Give me a man that we may fight together. When Saul and all Israel heard these words of the Philistine, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. Now, somebody read 17 to 18.
brothers are well and bring some token from me. Now verse 23 on the next page. Uh oh. 26 to 27. So what's interesting about David's assessment of Goliath is that his assessment is very similar to Jonathan's assessment just a few chapters before when Jonathan goes alone into battle with the exception of with his armor bearer and goes to attack uh, the Philistines on behalf of the nation of Israel. Now, in both cases, for both David and Jonathan... All of Israel is terrified of the Philistines and considers them to be an invulnerable opponent, especially with this nine foot, six six inch tall giant out there on the battlefield that nobody can beat. And yet to both Jonathan and David, these are just uncircumcised Philistines. What are they to the living God? Nothing. This is easy. What are y'all doing cowering in terror when you have God on your side? That's an incredible amount of faith. However, along the way, as David continues to say these kinds of things and work his way up to the point where they're going to allow him on the battlefield, he encounters two Goliaths before he ever even gets to Goliath. One's name is Eliab, the other's name is Saul, and then there's obviously Goliath. And he is, in all three instances, people are looking at David's outward appearance and judging him by it. First is Eliab, who judges David by even the words he says, and presumes to know David's heart in the whole deal. 1 Samuel 17, 28. Now Eliab, his eldest brother heard when he spoke to the men. And Eliab's anger was kindled against David, and he said, why have you come down? And with whom have you left those few sheep in the wilderness? That's a, that's a, that's a slam, all right? You're just a little sheep herder. That's all you are, a little runt. I know your presumption and the, oh, goodness gracious, evil of your heart. No, no, no. David's a man after God's own heart, right? Uh, I presume to, uh, I know your presumption and the evil in your heart, for you have come down to see the battle. You just, you just want to watch people fight. That's all you want to do. Get out of here. So needless to say, Eliab's not too pleased with David, but he's judging, uh, he's judging the outward appearance of David, the, the way he's come to the battle, the reason he's come to the battle, even the words he says, and presumes to know his heart. But we know as the reader, no, no, no. David is a man after God's own heart. You don't know his heart. We know his heart. Well, we've been told what his heart is. And by the way, when David says this about Goliath, do you know that da- this is the first time David has spoken at all? This is the first time we've heard his voice. We've been told he's a man after God's own heart. We've, been, we've seen that he's been anointed. We've seen that he's come to Saul's side and he's been called by the king of Israel. But this is the first time we've heard his voice. Does his, does his words match what we've been told about him? Yeah, they seem to. All right, so Eliab is the first one. Then, then look at, at Saul, especially in verse 33 of 1 Samuel 17. And Saul said to David, you're not able to go against this Philistine to fight to fight with him, for you're but a youth, and he has been a man of war from his youth. And then Saul clothed David with his armor. He put his helmet of bronze on his head and clothed him with coat with coat of mail. And David uh, strapped his sword <laughs> over his armor, and he tried in vain to go, for he had not tested them. Then D- David said to Saul, "I can't go with these, for I've not tested them." So David uh, put them off. Okay, so. Saul, in Saul's mind, he's just a kid, and not only that, but oh, 
if you're going to go into battle, you got to have armor on, and you ain't got no armor. So why don't you use mine? You can't even wear my armor. How are you going to, how are you going to fight this guy? Well, and then there's Goliath himself. When he gets out, when David finally gets out onto the battlefield, uh, 17, 43 to, 40, to 40, uh, 44, uh, right there. And the Philistine said to David, am I a dog that you come to me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. The Philistine said to David, come to me and I will give your flesh to the birds of the air and to the beasts of the field. And he's going to have him on toast, essentially. <laughs> if you read the Jesus storybook Bible. <laughs> Squish your eyeballs and put it on toast. Uh, so Goliath is judging him by his size too. You're going you're gonna to come to me with a little stick? Look at this kid, a little runt. I, I, can, I can take him. So three instances where everybody in the story is looking all at the outward appearance. Yet again, and you're told, reader, you're not supposed to do that. Because, as it turns out, if the Spirit of the Lord is upon an individual, nothing else matters. Not one thing. Israel should be learning this lesson. It's a lesson they need to learn. If the Spirit of the Lord is with you, nothing else matters. Um, so, David makes a few speeches along the way. And he makes three, actually, and they're considered major in the story. Look at verse 26. David said to the men who stood by him, what shall be done for the man who kills this Philistine and takes away the reproach of Israel? Again, for who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? Now, 34 to 37. But David said to Saul, your servant used to keep sheep for his father. And when, they came, uh, uh, when, when there came a lion or a bear and took a lamb from the flock, I went after him and struck him and delivered it out of his mouth. And if he arose against me, I caught him by his beard and struck him and killed him. The servant, your servant, has struck down both lions and bears, and this uncircumcised Philistine shall be like one of them, for he has defied the armies of the living God. And David said, The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. And Saul said to David, go, and the Lord be with you. And then look at 45 to 47. David said to the Philistine, you come to me with a sword and a spear and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand, and I will strike you down and cut off your head. That's pretty brazen, right? That's some trash talk right there. I like that. Um, and I will give the, the dead bodies of the host. He's talking like a Texan. Uh, no. And I will give the, the, the dead bodies of the host of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air and to the wild beasts of the earth, and that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel, and that all this assembly may know that the Lord saves, not with the sword or the spear. For the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hand. Um, so, in all of these speeches that David gives, he's driving, the, the author, David, is driving at a theological meaning that should be communicated in this text. Now, all, all of us have probably heard of or seen facing the giants and these kinds of ideas that, that the story of David and Goliath is challenging you to face down your giants, the giants in your own life. Um, I don't think that's what the, the, the author was driving at at all. And main, mainly because most of the things in the, in the text don't, don't line up with that. That is the meaning of what he's trying to drive home with this story. That really the driving concern of this chapter is the honor of Yahweh's name, his reputation, and his glory. And the focus of this chapter is not on David's courage, but on Yahweh's adequacy in David's weakness. David comes to the battle weak. He doesn't come to the battle strong. He comes to the battle weak. It's the Lord that empowers him. And the Lord is defending his own name. That's the point. The Lord 
defends his own name. Now the question is, will the people who have the Spirit of the living God dwelling within them have the same kind of zeal for the Lord's name that David has here? David's not concerned for his own life. Why? Not because he's suddenly got a sense of boldness and he goes, you know what? I'm going to stare down the giants in my own life. No. That's not what David's doing. David sees an uncircumcised Philistine defying the armies of the Lord. And he takes great offense at what Goliath is doing because Goliath has spurned the name of his God. And having the spirit of the living God inside him, he cannot tolerate it. And so he goes out to the battlefield to fight Goliath, not because, again, he's staring down his own giants, but because he's defending the name of the Lord. So there comes up ethical questions all the time. Things where you're faced with a decision, some of it may get you into trouble, but it's the right thing to do. What are you going to do? There's coming a day in this country where our jobs, many of our jobs, are going to be held over our head so that we'll bow down to the agenda, as it were, to the narrative, to the message. You must believe this or you cannot work here. There's coming a day, and really already is here for many people in many professions. But the question is, if you have the Spirit of the living God inside you, what are you going to do? Are you going to defend the name of the Lord or bow down? I actually think that's the question in the entire book of Revelation. More than we're talking about events and prophecies and all of those kinds of things. I think the main question is, are you going to bow down to social pressure? Or are you going to defend the name of the Lord? That happens when we talk to the atheist or our unbelieving friend. That happens for me in my office. When a person comes in and says they want to get married to someone else or want to get divorced. or I'm always faced with these conundrums. What am I going to do? Am I going to tell this person the truth? Or am I going to tell them what's easy? Because I don't want to deal with the awkward conversation that's about to come. These kinds of conversations happen for us all the time. And if they haven't happened for you, they will. And the question is, what are you going to do? If you have the spirit of the living God inside you, do you care as much for his name as you do for your own? More than you do for your own. Do you care as much for his name as David does here? That he would be willing to do what everyone else considers suicide to defend the name of the Lord? That's the question. Any other questions? Go ahead. Yeah, I mean, there's a, that, that's a difficult thing for me to say, a blanket recommendation. Um, there's shrewdness and expediency. You know, what is, what is most prudent at the time? You, doesn't mean you go into every battle, right? That, it doesn't mean that, I don't think. Um, but it might. So I'll pray for you in those situations that you make the right decision. Uh, not to, to not give you an answer, but there, there's, a, there, there's going to be a measure of shrewdness that you have to take. Um, when it comes to Thanksgiving dinners, do you have every, 
every conversation with your pagan relatives that sit around your table? Do you correct everything that they say every time they say it? Uh, probably, probably not, I would say. Um, and, but, but are you picking your battles? Because there's a difference in saying, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to ch- pick and choose when my moments are, and I'm going to swallow my tongue forever and never say anything. Right? So y- you do have to be shrewd, and you do have to choose wisely and, the, and choose the battles that you know are going to be are going to be ones you need to fight. And you have to pray for wisdom as to know which one those are. You know? They're not always evident. So, but I think the point... Yeah. He's going to help prepare them. And your wisdom comes from recognizing when that time is right. And and each situation is going to be different. Each individual is going to be different. So, you know... um, it all, I think a lot of it depends, too. Good friend, casual acquaintance, acquaintance someone you're never going to see again. Um, you might make a different decision depending on who the person is. You know, what's the situation? In passing or in a deep conversation? Those things matter, too. You know? But it might be, potentially is, may always be, uh, prodding of the Lord to you, this is a person that needs the gospel. Consider it. Other questions? All right, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you again asking for wisdom for all the many decisions that we have that we come across every day. People that spurn your name and despise your hand of providence and reject completely your existence that you would give us the wisdom to know how to respond to these people. And even more than that, too, that you would give us a desire to fight for and and to love and to cherish and to hold up as valuable before everyone that we meet and see your name. Moses was punished because he didn't do this. People over the course of the entire Old Testament, the story we've studied so far, have all been punished because they neglected to revere your name in front of the people. I pray we would not be counted among them, but that we would fight for your name. That we would love people because of your name. That we would be bold witnesses because of your name. That we would share with others because we want to see your name worshipped and proclaimed in more places than it is right now. That we would give money because we want to see your name proclaimed amongst people that right now have never heard of you. Pray that all those things would be true because we have a deep desire to see your name glorified in the earth. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.